Lord, we come before you humbly today, and we ask you, Father God, that you act upon our hearts, that you act upon our lives, just like you did on the Apostle Paul's on the road to Damascus. God, if you don't touch our hearts, our hearts will remain hard. If you don't heal our eyes, we will remain blind. If you don't create a miracle, we will remain deaf. And God, today I pray, do what only you can do in our lives, but not just in ours, but in every single person under the sound of my voice, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all those who love the Lord said, Amen. Amen. The disciples didn't ask Jesus for anything throughout the Gospels, except one time. The disciples asked, teach us to pray. But the reason they did was because what they saw him do. They saw him go away and pray. I'll give you an example. There was a time when the, uh, dis- when the disciples attempted to cast a demon out of a person. And they tried all they could. And they were unsuccessful. And while they were doing this, where was Jesus? He was on the hill praying. But they knew how powerful he pr- his prayers were. <clears throat> He came down from the mountain and he said, out, and the demon left. And they were like, Jesus, afterwards, of course, when the crowd was gone, they talked to him privately. They said, why could you do it? And we couldn't. We tried everything. And he said that some come out only with prayer and fasting. Sometimes we have to realize that prayer isn't us asking God to, to add something to our lives, but to take something away from us. When we pray, God is taken away from us, the evil that we so readily give ourselves to. When we pray, God is taken away from us, the flesh taken away desires we ought not to have. He is sanctifying us while we pray. So my prayer life ought to first and foremost in your prayer life or to first and foremost do something in you take things away from you long before it adds anything to you this is why sometimes we struggle in life with certain things right we go like god why aren't you taking this away he says pray sometimes people come to me and being in the ministry for many years now especially young people, they come, they go, I just can't handle this temptation anymore. It's just overcoming me. Well, prayer is the answer to your strength when it comes to overcoming and walking away from temptation. Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. But then he also says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In other words, lead us away from all these temptations. Help me overcome. But all of this is wrapped up in prayer. You might say, well, God knows what I need. God knows what I should do. Why doesn't he just help me? Well, prayer is God's means through which he helps you. Prayer is God's means through which he establishes his kingdom. Pray, your kingdom come. 
He chose to establish his kingdom through your prayers. To help you walk away from temptation through prayers. To strengthen you. To take away the flesh in a way through prayer. But what I saw when I read this, the disciples saying, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I realized that prayer is something that needs to be taught. Nobody naturally has a prayer life. Everybody naturally cries, Abba, Father, when they have a new heart. And even atheists shout, help us, God, when the airplane's engines burn out, right? <laughs> Uh, but nobody has a natural prayer life unless we are taught something and what you are taught can be practiced in order to become better at it. And so that's what the series is about. It's about prayer. And it's um, designed to be in January because what you do first matters. What I do first determines what else I get to do. It's like when you move and you get you back up that big old U-Haul truck. What you put in first determines how much you can put in. And in the same way, if you feel like your life is too busy, you can't pray. Well, that's the thing. Your life is too busy because you don't pray. What you do first allow, determines what else you get to do. Jesus, with one word cast out a devil, in a moment, because... He came down the mountain after praying. The disciples tried the whole entire morning and couldn't accomplish anything because they were the ones not praying. So I'm not telling you that you have to pray. I'm just saying to you, imagine if you did. Wow. Imagine if you did. We teach our children how to tie their shoelaces. We teach them how to shave. We teach them how to behave in public. We should also teach them how to pray. And before we do, we need to learn how to pray. Jesus said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. That's what this is, a house of prayer. So there are different kinds of prayers. I want to list just a few to you that we will be dealing with in this series just to whet your appetite. First, uh, there's the prayer of thanksgiving, which is different from the prayer of praise, which is different from the prayer of worship. But let me first just ask you, how many of you, when you start praying, you go like, man, my prayers are so short because I am, when I pray, I'm like, God, help me. Amen. <laughs> Lord, I need something. Amen. Man, my prayers are so short. Well, this is going to help you develop your prayer life to the point where you're going, I can't fit all the prayers I need to pray into an hour. And so, in order to know how to pray, we need to know that there are different kinds of prayers and they are not all the same. And they are not literally about you all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> They're actually first and foremost about God, His glory. Listen, when you, when you ask the nominal Christian in today's, in, in today's America, what is the purpose of God? They would say, my salvation they literally think that they are God's purpose. Well, that's not true. I don't claim to know all of God's purposes, but I do know this. His glory is His purpose, and I am a means to glorify Him. I know that His kingdom is His purpose, and I am a means through which He builds His kingdom. 
especially through prayers. I know that giving his son a gift, a bride, is one of God's purposes. And you are the bride. So we are a means unto God's purposes. We are not God's purpose. And so what we have to learn to do is to pray according to God's purposes, not according to our desires, wants, and likes only. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that's not a priority prayer. So we see that there are these different kinds of prayers. There's the prayer of thanksgiving, the prayer of praise, the prayer of worship, and they're all different. They're not the same. I thank God because he's been generous to me, because he's good. I praise God because he's great. I worship God because he's holy. These are different kinds of prayers. Then we have the prayer of consecration. That's the prayer where you actually consecrate yourself. You take yourself and you put yourself on the altar and you say, God, I'm dead to myself. I'm alive to you. May I be the aroma of life unto you. May my life be a life of worship unto you. That's the definition of holiness, to be separated unto. When I consecrate my life to God, I'm saying I'm separating myself unto you, God, your purposes, what you have for me and not what I have for me. That is the prayer of consecration. And we're going to talk through that and how to do it. Then you have the prayer of supplication. You're asking God for something. Then you have the prayer of faith. Then we have the Lord's prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. They asked, teach us to pray. And he said, well, why don't you guys pray in this way? So these are the, this is the Lord's prayer, the disciples' prayer. And then uh, we're also going to talk about what it means to call on the name of the Lord. An extremely powerful prayer, calling on the name of the Lord. Again, if we had an understanding of what it means to pray, and if we are trained in praying, can you imagine what all God can do in your life, what all He would remove from your life, add to your life, and what He would do through your life? If we could only grasp that this was God's means by which He was going to, Deliver, bless, add to you, and make you uh, fruitful. We would pray, if only we understood it. However, today, we have to start somewhere. And not, we're not going to look at the prayer of thanksgiving, praise, or worship, supplication, consecration, prayer of faith, the Lord's Prayer, or calling on the name of the Lord. What we are going to look at is a very interesting prayer. It is the prayer we all start with. It's the prayer of repentance. The prayer of repentance. This is the prayer the church has lost altogether. Christianity has lost as a whole. Because now Christianity teaches that God loves you, therefore you're forgiven. Not so. God loves everybody and not everybody's forgiven. Just because God loves you doesn't mean you are saved. When you repent... <laughs> Now you've come to God, right? So the prayer of repentance is how we come to God. And I want to point out two different people in the Bible. Both of them sinned. Both of them very sorrowful over the fact that they have committed this sin. One was forgiven, the other one not. Can you believe that? Two people sin, both weeping over their sin. One is forgiven, 
The other one is not because the one truly repented. The other one had a false repentance and we need to see what that is. The one had a godly sorrow while the other one had a worldly sorrow. And we have to, dis we have to distinguish between these two to see which one we fall into. And if we fall into the worldly sorrow, we need to realize our repentance isn't real. We have to actually have godly sorrow. The two people are Judas and David. Judas was sorrowful for what he did. David was sorrowful for what he did. In order to explain the difference between these two people's repentance, um, theologians refer to two different terms. The one is attrition and the other one is contrition. Can you throw that on the board for me? Attrition versus contrition. Judas had attrition. David, King David, had contrition. And we need to understand what the difference is. Let's look at Judas. He had remorse, but he did not have repentance. In Matthew 27, verse 3 and 5, the Bible says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he, he was seized with remorse. Who? Judas. Judas was gripped with remorse when he saw what he had done. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. Quote, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. I mean, here's Judas. Can you believe it? He admits that he has sinned. I have sinned, he says, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Jesus, Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself committed suicide. So this is clear that Judas had attrition, meaning he was filled with sorrow. But here it is. Not because he offended God. He was sorrowful for what he had done because he feared the punishment that now awaits him. He was sorrowful of all that he had lost which is God's promised blessings. But he was not sorrowful for violating a holy God. He was sorrowful for what is now going to happen to him, not for what he had done to God. And there's a difference. That is attrition. Instead of showing that he was sorrowful for what he did against Christ, he was sorrowful for opening himself up to punishment the way he did. Instead of begging God for mercy, these people who have attrition, not contrition, but attrition, they, be they don't beg God for mercy. But, he tries to but people try to fix it. They throw money back into the temple. And then they go and they harm themselves instead of turning to God and say, God, have mercy. The fact is there was no repentance for Judas. Now, contrition, on the other hand, 
contrition is a sign of true repentance. And we have to identify what it means to have a contrite heart. Certain elements must be present uh, in your prayer if, in fact, you're praying a true prayer of repentance with contrition in your heart. The first element that shows somebody has contrition, the first sign you have that you truly are repenting is that you admit that you have sinned and you acknowledge that your sin was against God, a holy God. The repentant individual admits that the great injustice he has done is something he committed against a perfectly righteous God that deserved none of the violation that they committed against him. You see, the repentant individual admits that their sin was an offense against God himself, not against necessarily only another person or against themselves, but against God's holy character. You see, when God made you, He made you in His image. He made you to reflect who He is. You don't create glory from within yourself. You are a reflector of God's glory. And when this reflector gets thrown into the mud, in other words, if this reflector becomes broken and obscure because of all the sin that clouds it, the glory of God is not shining through this person's life. It's a violation against who God is and who He made you to be. So the first element that I need to um, recognize in order to see that I am truly repentant is that I have to admit that I have sinned and I have acknowledged that my sin is against God. Are you all with me? Good. Steve, I think it's a little cold. I'm sure some of you will be happy. The second element that shows that you, in fact, truly repented is that you recognize that your sin deserves punishment. And this is so important. Many people go, God, forgive me, because they want to go to heaven and not to hell. But they didn't really think that there was much to forgive over here. I don't really, I'm not really a murderer. I'm not a prostitute. I don't know. You know, I'm not really bad. And the reason they think that is because they don't know how good God is. They don't realize how big the moral difference is between a holy God and them, a fallen human being. They think that, well, I'm pretty, pretty good. And therefore, there's not much to repent for. There's not much to be sorrowful over. But when they realize that their sin is such a violation that it requires eternal damnation, now they're ready to actually repent. You know, somebody said, you know, I don't understand God. All Adam and Eve did was they took a bite of an apple. Really? And you're going to condemn them for the rest of all eternity? I mean, really, come on. Somebody, somebody sinned a small sin, they stole a paperclip, and you're going to condemn them for all eternity? Well, the reason somebody would think that is because they don't realize 
how great God is or how holy God is. And they don't realize that any one small sin against such a perfectly holy God is sufficient for eternal punishment. I've given this example before and I'll do it again. Let's say, for instance, we go play basketball, right? And um, two guys, see, we got a brand new front row. Thank you. <laughs> two guys on the basketball, two friends, they get into a tiff. They start pu pushing around each other, pushing each other around. And the one shouts at the other one and says, hey, if you ever do that again, I will punch you in the face, right? Well, everybody else on the court says, hey, hey, guys, just knock it off, you know, cool it, cool it. That's about the extent of the reprimand that will come to the one who is pushing around a friend, right? And gave a threat to a friend. If you do this again, I will punch you in the face. That's about this, the amount of the reprimand that's going to come to this person. Now, let's put it in a different context. Let's say, for instance, I'm trying to think of somebody. The President of the United States walks cr across that basketball court and this guy makes the exact same threat to the President of the United States and he says, I'm going to punch you in the face. What's going to happen to that guy then? Secret Service tackles this guy, <laughs> cuffs him, throws him in the back of a truck, everybody's taking pictures of him. He is on the front, front page of all the newspapers, mainstream me media. Why? He gave the exact same threat to the president that he gave to his friend. Well, the consequences were different because of who it was he threatened. The consequences are different depending on who it is that you sinned against. And when you sin, even a small sin against a perfectly holy God, immediately that consequence becomes eternal and complete. The reason somebody would say, why would you condemn Adam and Eve, throw them out of the Garden of Eden over such a small act is because they don't know who God is. They have no idea of the perfect holiness of the Almighty. And what a violation it is to sin against Him, even if it's a small one. So the person that is truly contrite in their heart. In other words, if you have truly repented, this is what happened to you. You admitted that you're a sinner and that you admitted that your sin was against a holy God. And number three, you admit that your sin deserves eternal punishment because of who you sinned against. And then fourthly, if you truly repented, you will realize that the Lord would be just and righteous to punish you if, in fact, He decides to do so. This is big right here. Something happened in the West or in modern Christianity where people have heard that God is good in every possible way you can think good, every possible way you can define that word good. They say, well, God is good in that way. Imagine anything good, God is good that way. And so everybody would imagine, well, a good God would therefore love me to no end eternally, and He would give me all the mercy um, I need, all the grace I need. He'd give me everything I'll ever need. 
Well, the point is that he doesn't owe you mercy. He doesn't owe you anything. There's a difference between mercy and justice. How many of you have ever gone to court over a, over a ticket, right? Speeding ticket. I remember going to court. And as we sitting over there, um, I was in a suit. I was going to try and make the biggest impression I could possibly. And I think the Lord heard my heart. And so the guy walks up, he says, before the judge comes out, and he spoke to about seven of us. And he said, before the judge comes out, let me just quickly tell you, uh, we are going to accuse you of something. And then if you're going to put up a big fight, you're going to get the least amount of mercy from this judge. But if you put up no fight and you go, I'm guilty judge, that judge is going to give you more mercy than you deserve. So I was the one listening. Of course, the other six guys sitting next to me, they went down the road, the first guy, judge, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't go that fast. <laughs> yes, you did. And then the police officer was there. Then the whole argument started and the police officer proved, well, here's the, you're wrong. You did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. Okay, you know what? $350, take his, take his license away. And I didn't, I didn't. You know, and he walks out screaming. He's still innocent. No, he's not. He got zero mercy. And I thought, man, did they not listen? Just say yes, I'm guilty. Especially if they can show the, ca show the camera footage. <laughs> so they got to me and I was, your honor, I'm guilty. I did. I did. Now I'll tell you, when, I, when you come from South Africa, we drive like maniacs over there. <laughs> All over Africa. They drive like maniacs. When I came here, I couldn't believe how slow people drove. And I didn't realize that the lanes were for you to stay in. <laughs> didn't know what the lanes were for. <laughs> and so the first, the first three months of moving to the United States, I had an international driver's license, meaning that because you had a license in your country, they will let you drive for a while here. And so for the first three months, I got pulled over 14 times. I kid you not. Now that there, as if I didn't learn a lesson, but what happens is when they pull you over, and if Chris Crumbs here, he could tell you, you pull over somebody with an international driver's license, what they say is, here's my international driver's license. And they go like, you know what? What am I supposed to do? Send the ticket to your home? Yep, I live in Africa. Please send it. <laughs> You know, they're not going to send it, right? And so the cops just go like, you know, forget it. I remember driving through Tinley Park. I get pulled over. This is around about 13 or 14th time that they get pulled over. The guy goes, I got a guy uh, going 65, 65 in a 40 zone. And I heard them say over, over the uh, loudspeaker, what is it? Is it the guy with the long hair in, in, a, in a Lexus? <laughs> he goes, yeah, he's a long, long hair in Lexus. <laughs> anyway, I knew all the cops by then. <laughs> but then after that, of course, I get my regular driver's license eventually because I got a green card eventually, like nine months later. And um, actually, I forget how long it was. It was for the longest time. Got my driver's license and I didn't learn my lesson. So uh, four tickets later, I'm in court 
And here I am. These guys didn't learn their lesson. I know I'm about to lose my driver's license. And so uh, when they called me forward, I stood forward and I said, about my head, I said, Your Honor, I'm guilty. I'm so guilty. I'm so sorry. And she said, you know, uh, if you do this again, you will lose your license, right? I said, I, I totally know. She says, actually, you were supposed to lose it today. I said, I know. I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for being kind to me. I, I, I've learned my lesson. And she says, well, go ahead. And honestly, no fine, no nothing. I have a license. I walked out. Yeah. Isn't it wonderful? Yeah. <laughs> it was the long hair. <laughs> Yeah. But what people do is they stand before the judge of all the ages and they demand mercy. Give me mercy. Really, what you do deserve is to lose your, lose your license. You deserve justice. Therefore, you can't demand mercy. If God gives us all justice, he wouldn't be wrong. He would be holy. He wouldn't do anything immoral if he sends every single one of us to hell forever. He wouldn't do anything wrong. But because of his love, he shows mercy to some. So some receive justice. Others receive mercy, no one receives injustice from God. Nobody can accuse God of anything because he is just and he's merciful both at the same time. And so what, what we have to realize is when we pray the prayer of repentance, we admit that we have sinned. We admit that we have sinned against God. We admit that we deserve eternal damnation for our sin. This is a contrite heart. And then we realize that if in fact he gives, if he gave us justice, he wouldn't be wrong. Where does that leave the person with a contrite heart? It leaves him in one place and one place only. On his knees, before God, begging for what? Mercy. God, I need mercy. God, I'm desperate for mercy. I know that I sinned. I know that I sinned against you. I know my sin deserves eternal wrath and damnation. I know that if you gave that to me, you would still be just. I need mercy, God. There's no other way out of here. You know, <clears throat> I, I'm on Facebook oftentimes with a friend of mine in South Africa. He used to be a friend in, in elementary school, but he's a complete atheist. And he asks me often, like, why are you even a Christian? You can't prove a thing. I say, well, why are you an atheist? He asks me, why are you a Christian? You can't prove a thing. I say to him, well, you're an atheist. You can't disprove a thing. I said, but one thing is true. Both of us are guilty. And I'd like to know, where are you taking your unresolved guilt? Where do you take it? I know where I take it. I run to God. I come to the throne room of God with boldness. 
begging for mercy. Hebrews 4.6, let us therefore come boldly to the throne room of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy. We boldly come begging. This is the prayer of repentance. You boldly come begging for mercy, God. <clears throat> now, King David prays a prayer of repentance, and he does a fantastic job doing so because he had such a contrite heart. And uh, after David commits the sin with Bathsheba, for those of you that don't know the story, he was king. He was supposed to be out at war. He decided to not go to war. Instead, he decided to stay home, walking around on his rooftop. He looks down and he sees this beautiful woman taking a bath. And he calls for her. Her name was Bathsheba. She was married to a man by the name Uriah. Uriah, her husband, was at war, so she was home alone. He calls her, he sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant. Now what are they going to do? She's pregnant. So he decides to send for Uriah and call Uriah out of war to come and sleep with his wife so that when she is pregnant, everybody will think it was because he was with his wife. Well, Uriah won't go into the house because he feels, you know, all my... All my friends, soldier friends, are at war. How do I get to have the comforts of home and the pleasure of my wife? So he doesn't go in, and everybody knows this. So they know he does not sleep with his own wife. Well, David doesn't know what to do. So what he does is, he sends for Uriah to go back to war, but to go to the front lines which would be his imminent death. Everybody on the front lines would for sure die. So he basically murdered Uriah. Marries his wife, Bathsheba, in order to cover this whole deal of her pregnancy. So not only does he not go to war, he actually takes another man's wife, gets her pregnant, and then to cover it up, he kills her husband. So he's got so much guilt on him. Then the prophet comes to him and the prophet says to him, you did this. And immediately he realizes, I have sinned. There's no way for me to get away with this. And then he prays this prayer. This is the prayer of repentance. Look at what he does. <clears throat> In verse 16 and 17 of Psalm 51, and I want you to go home and read Psalm 51 over and over and over and over again until you get the spirit and the heart of what it means to be truly repentant. Look at verse 16 and 17. He says, For you, God, this is David praying, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. Okay, what's he saying here? In the Old Testament, what they would do is, for all of their sins, they would take an animal, and the animal would get slaughtered on their behalf, right? in order to cover their sins. And David was so clear as to what God's plan of salvation was that he said, God, that is not really what you're looking for. He says, the sacrifices of God, verse 17, are a broken spirit, 
and a broken and contrite heart. Remember, there's a difference between contrition and attrition. Judas had, was, had attrition. He was sorrowful for himself. David here has a contrite heart. He has contrition. He is sorrowful for what he did to God. Okay? So we see that's where the idea of a contrite heart comes in. He says these sacrifices of God are a broken, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Now let's go to the top of David's prayer. And let's see how he prays this sinner's prayer or this prayer of repentance. He says, have mercy on me, O God. According to you, unfailing love, unfailing love. Here David starts by begging the judge of all the universe, heaven and earth, the judge of eternity. He says, judge, have mercy on me. If you give me justice, you won't be wrong. But I beg you for mercy, God. Verse 2. Well, let's go verse 1 again. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Wash away all the wickedness inside of me. This is what prayer does. It takes stuff away from you. It's like that scalpel that, that the surgeon uses in order to take the cancer out of your body. He says, take out this iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. There he acknowledges, I know that I have transgressed you, God. My sin against you is always before me. Against you, you only, have I done what is evil in your sight. Sure. He murdered the man after he got his wife pregnant. And he says, but God, I've sinned against you. The primary sin that you commit or the sin that you commit is primarily against a perfectly holy God violating the character of God that you were supposed to reflect. You were supposed to reflect faithfulness, but you acted in unfaithfully. Against you have I done this evil. So you are right in your verdict. Watch what he says. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. God, if you cast me out forever, you wouldn't do the wrong thing. I deserve it. And the problem is most people believe themselves to be too good for God to give them justice. They have, they have an intoxicated view of self. This is why the doctrine of total depravity is the most hated doctrine and the most important and necessary doctrine in the church. We see Daniel also prays the same prayer in Daniel chapter 9, verse 3 through 11. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy. 
with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Look at him. Seeking mercy. Verse 4, I pray to the Lord my God and make confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned, admission, and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turned aside from your commandments and rules, admission. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belong righteousness, but to us shame. As at, this, at, as, as at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that you have committed against, that we have committed against you. Not only do they admit that they have sinned, they admit that they have sinned against him. We see Daniel praying this prayer in verse 17. He says, Now, therefore, O Lord God, listen to the prayer of your servants and to his, and to his pleas for mercy. Pleading and begging God for mercy. When you read through the rest of the chapter, that's all he's doing. He's begging God for mercy. I want to end off by giving you the final example for today on the prayer of repentance. This is the prayer you pray when you come to God as a fallen, sinful human being. You and I started our relationship coming to God this way. We maintain our relationship. Or let me say, we maintain the intimacy of our relationship by coming to God, for asking God for forgiveness. I want to give you an example. Let's say there's a husband and a wife. And the husband, for whatever reason, is under a tremendous a lot of pressure, tremendous a lot of stress. He's short with his wife, and he starts ignoring her. He starts snapping at her, and he starts saying things that are very hurtful. What has happened to the intimacy in that marriage? It's gone. Are they still married? Yes. Are they still married? Yes. Is the intimacy there? Not the way it used to be. How do you get the intimacy back? <laughs> Repentance. The husband comes and he says, Wife, I've been under tremendous amount of pressure. Whatever the case is, it's my fault. I've acted in ways I shouldn't. Please forgive me. And when repentance has been made and forgiveness has been given restoration comes and intimacy is back what i'm saying to you is your intimacy that you have with the father is dependent upon you knowing these prayers of repentance like we came to god initially repenting that's why we are saved but we maintain intimacy with god because we live a repentant lifestyle there's a message out in christianity you don't have to repent anymore. You're already forgiven. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're already in Christ. Why repent? Well, that person right there feels like they can violate God all day long and still be intimate with Him. How does that work? It doesn't. We have to live lives of repentance. Here we see the final example is the tax collector. He prays, he prays the prayer of repentance. 
this short little story that Jesus gave us right here is the one that changed my life five years ago in a big way when I saw that God gives grace to one and he rejects the other. When I saw what it meant to humble yourself and receive the grace of God. This is where I saw it in. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14, it says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. In other words, there were some people who thought that they were better than others. Jesus went to them and said, All right, I've got a story for you. He says, Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. Now, just to give you background, Pharisees were like the religious leaders of the day. They were dressed in garb and they were holy and everything. A tax collector, on the other hand, were the most despised people in society. Because, and they still are, they are the ones that would tax everybody, <laughs> that would tax everybody beyond what was necessary so that they can keep some for themselves. All right? So they were basically thieves. They were robbing people blind using the government as, 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 as a scapegoat. And so here's this most hated individual. Everybody knows he's a thief, he's a liar, and he robs people. And here is this holy man. All right? Now Jesus tells a story about these two going to the temple at the same time. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. He stood by himself and prayed. Watch his prayer. He says, this is the religious leader, right? God, I thank you that I'm not like all the other people. Scuzz. Thank you I'm not like all the other people. Robbers evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. Thank you, God, I'm not like them. So he sees himself as so much better. And then he goes on. He digs his own grave even deeper. He says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I have. God, look at me. <laughs> I'm awesome. Not only do I not do what they do, I do a lot of good on the other hand. Fast twice a week and give my tenth. You see, this Pharisee lacked any sense of his own unworthiness. Again, the doctrine of total depravity is missing. And so he's left in the hole that he dug for himself. He, he showed that his entire hope lay in him being better than others and self-righteous. Now look at verse 13. But the tax collector, this guy everybody knows is a sinner, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, What? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He admits that he's a sinner and that only God's mercy could save him, nothing else. When you get to that place, you're truly repentant. When you realize that it's only the mercy of God that can resolve your unresolved guilt, that can cleanse you from your entire lifetime of sins. Oh, I don't sin much. 
You only think that because you don't know God. Look at what Jesus says about these two. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves, like the Pharisee, will be humbled. And those who humble themselves, like the tax collector, will be exalted. In another gospel it says, the humble will receive my grace. We have to seek to repent while repentance can be found. You say, no, I can repent anytime. Now, this is the lie. Watch this quick, okay? Most people think, hey, I've got time. I'm going to one day repent. I'm just still going to enjoy myself a little bit, and then later on in life, I'm going to repent. That is the lie the devil tells everybody. I want you to look at this verse closely, quickly. Hebrews 12, 15, and 17. He says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many um, become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like who? Esau. What did Esau do? He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, verse 17, for you know that after he sold it, afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was seeking, the Bible says in in another version, the place of repentance, but he couldn't find it. People allow their hearts to become so hard that even if they seek to repent, they find no place for it. There is no longer the gift of repentance given them. In other words, repent while you can. That's the story or the essence of Hebrews 12, 15 through 17. Repent today. Do not put repentance off. So our conclusion here today is this. Admit you have sinned. Stop pretending like you're not a sinner. I love how Charles Spurgeon says, if anyone says anything ill about you, don't be angry at him because you are much worse than what this guy says you are. (laughs) It's true. So admit that you're a sinner. Number two, acknowledge that your sin was against a perfectly holy God. Number three, recognize that your sin deserves punishment and that God would be perfectly just if He gave you complete punishment for that sin. You don't deserve mercy. Otherwise, if you did, it wouldn't be mercy. And then finally, it brings you to one place and one place only. Beg God for mercy in order to find forgiveness. If you have a contrite heart before God, in other words, a heart that's struck because you have violated God's holy character, the the scriptures therefore now declares to you. In 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, if he is faithful and just to forgive us 
of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you repent, God will forgive you. Psalm 32 verse 1 and 6 says, Blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, here it is. When I kept silent, this is the same David who was silent about his sins against Uriah and Bathsheba and God. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have hidden. I have not hidden. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. What's he saying? He's saying that there is a time that he may not be found. Finally, Psalm 103 verse 10 and 12 says, He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Why not? Because he's showing mercy. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed or has he removed our transgressions from us? Family, do not put repentance off. Do not kick that can down the road. Today is that day. Let's pray. Father, I pray today that you will show us in absolute clarity the times when we have been, when we had the same heart as Judas, where we were sorrowful because we harmed ourselves. We were sorrowful because we know that we have now lost something. We are sorrowful because we know we have hurt ourselves or we are now opening ourselves to punishment, loss and heartache, knowing that that is not true repentance. True repentance is when we are sorrowful for be because of what we did to you. Help us, Father God, know that if you give us 100% justice, you will not become in unjust. You will not be unfair. Therefore, we know we have only one option, and that is to come to you asking you for mercy. God, we beg you for mercy. Forgive us, God. Forgive us, Lord. We know that we committed sin against you. And as we do, God, as we pray this prayer of repentance throughout the rest of our lives, God, I pray that you will keep us humble enough to receive forgiveness consistently and so maintain intimacy with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.